This is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. We'll read together, pray, and then see what the Lord might have for us. Once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Y'all, let's pray together. We'll hear from the Lord, I hope, together. Uh, Holy Spirit, we are thankful, God, this morning for for the gift of the church and sacred space, for a time, Lord, to be together. Thank you, Lord, for gathering us to yourself. And my prayer is, Holy Spirit, that you would just give us grace to be able, Lord, to be with you, to be present to your voice, to what you're saying, and to what you want to do. Lord, where we are not free, or where we are less free than you would have us to be, Lord. You come, Holy Spirit. Deliver us, Lord. We look to you, Jesus. And our prayer, God, is the same, where we cannot see that you would help us to see, in the same way you helped our brother to see, Lord. Will you come, God, in your freedom? It's in the name of Jesus, Lord, that we pray and do all these things. Amen. 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 Uh, Good morning, y'all. Welcome to church. Uh, If you're here this morning and you're new, maybe to Christ the King, um, it's spring break this week, and so it's funny. I'm looking out, and there are a number of you that I, I don't know, and all the people I do know are gone, so we've, like, we've swapped, which is, is great. But if you're here this morning and you're kind of like, man, um, if everything, everybody feels new to you, that's because I think maybe a lot of us are. Um, and that's, that's great. But that uh, may be a special reason just to make sure that you look somebody in the face this morning and say, hey, we're really glad you took a big old risk and came to a church that you didn't know to sit with people that you didn't know um, to maybe just see what God might do and say. And I never want to make light of what a big deal that is. It's a hard thing to do. So welcome. We're really, really glad that you're here. Um, my name's Ashley. I'm the priest here at Christ the King, and this is the fourth Sunday in the season of Lent. So um, that's the reason for all of the purple, and that's the reason for these long readings that we've been doing every week. Anglicans um, have as their habit. Uh, they read a lot of the Bible during, um, and as a part of the liturgy, but that's particularly true during Lent. If you've noticed that the readings have gotten longer, and it's like, man, we're really going for it. The whole story, huh? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, such is the way of Lent, and that's um, in part because we always want to rush through things, you know? The gift of the church calendar, one of them anyway, is slowing us down, forcing us to pay attention to time and its impacts on us, particularly the lack that we always feel for it. We don't ever have enough of it. We're always in a hurry. 
Lent is a call to prepare. And so that's what the church has been doing, not just at Christ the King, but in churches all over the world. Through the season of Lent, we're called to prepare, of course, for the coming of Easter, which is true, but it's um, like not just that one Sunday and not just like that season, but I think and I hope that you've been kind of asking yourself the question, what is it actually that we're preparing for? Why have a Lent? And part of it is so that you'll slow down enough to be able to think about why the resurrection matters for you, why the promise of God to bring new life and healing and restoration to you and to the whole world like actually matters for you. It's a reminder that God is truly, genuinely, actually committed to doing that. And so Easter is just a season. It's a, it's a kind of symbol, a mark on a calendar, a way to point at something as a reminder to all of us that that's a fact about who God is that God's always committed to redemption, always committed to new life. But there are these seasons when we're called to really lean into that promise, that hope. And Lent is the time when we're called to prepare for it. And one of the things we've been talking about these last few weeks, we've been in Romans, actually, for the last number of weeks, um, Paul's letter. But today, the lectionary has us in Ephesians. And um, I don't know why exactly, but um, I'm thankful for it. Because every Sunday we've been talking about through the letter of, of, to Romans, or to the Romans, what it means to prepare for God's promise of resurrection, God's promise of new life. Like, how do we do that actually? Like, we all know that during Lent people are called to do things like fast, to repent, practice Sabbath. We've been talking about a number of these practices. But we've been saying, and I hope you've been able to hear, that the point of doing all of that stuff is so that we can be more free. The reason that we fast, the reason that we keep Sabbath, the reason that we confess our sins is all for freedom's sake. That the call of the church, really, is to ask ourselves the question, like, am I free in the way that God would have me to be so that I can step into whatever new thing he might want to do in my life? That's why Jesus went into the woods for 40 days and 40 nights. It's why Israel spent 40 years. Apparently, they were really not ready. They needed a longer time to prepare. And so similarly, we're asking ourselves during this season, like, if it is true that God's, like, committed to doing new things in my life, that he wants to show up and bring restoration, that there's always new growth for me, something that I've not yet learned, not yet seen of him or experienced of him, that's around the corner for me, how do I get ready? How do I make sure that I'm free enough to be the person who can receive it or step into it? And so all of these practices, be it Sabbath keeping or confession or fasting, all of it is to that end, for the sake of freedom. So today, we're going to look at another practice, really practically, I hope. Um, And that is uh, the practice of I think I'm missing part of my sermon notes, I'm just realizing. Maybe not. Hope we get through. (laughs) Um, The practice of confession. Fun. Anglican churches, um, we do, we're pretty hardcore during Lent. And um, I make no apologies for it. It's one of the things that I probably appreciate the most about this tradition. And I said this at the beginning of the season. It just bears repeating. Um, I think Lent is an invitation to courage, actually, in a, like, deeply countercultural way. 
we spend a lot of our time, we said this at the beginning during Ash Wednesday, pretending that, you know, like maybe we don't want to think about death and so we don't, the fact that we're going to die. We spend a lot of time pretending that we're not afraid or anxious by escaping the anxiety, trying to outrun it all or get away from it or avoid it. And Lent is a call to the courageous, to the Christian to say, mm -mm, don't run, don't pretend, stand your ground, look it in the face, call it like it is. If you're eating too much, it's time to fast. If it's been too long since you said you're sorry, it's time to confess your sins. If you're too busy and overworked, it's not your boss's fault or your wife's fault or your husband's fault or your kid's fault. It's time to take responsibility for your time and keep Sabbath. And I really appreciate that about the Lenten season. So similarly today, we're going to talk about confession in that spirit, the spirit of courage. Um, and look at this, these verses from Ephesians. I want you to hear them um, through the lens of confession. He never once talks about the right of Ephesians um, outright, confession or sin or any of that. But with confession in mind, I want you to, to hear these words. Once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to mention what such people do secretly. But everything exposed by the light becomes light, becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This passage is actually a call to Christians to separate themselves from these so-called works of darkness. And I don't mean so-called because they're not actually. They are, in fact, works of darkness. And if you're backing up in the chapter, if you look at Ephesians, um, he mentions some of them. And they're the ones that you might probably like assume. Fornication, <laughs> which is always like, a, like Bible works of darkness number one. Fornication, it's the one that we all know. We're not exactly sure what it is, but it can't be good. Fornication, impurity, and greed of all kinds get named in verse 3. And then he goes on to list some others. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander with all malice. Take no part in these things, he says, but instead expose them. Ah, everything exposed by the light becomes visible. Everything that becomes visible is light. So I think a terribly unhelpful way to interpret what's being said is that this is a commission to go forth and hereby expose all of the works of darkness in your friends <laughs> and in the people around you. We read it in church this morning. It's my duty, duty-bound. I'm on a mission to expose all of your darkness <laughs> and the darkness all around me. I don't recommend it. Number one, I don't think that's what the passage is calling us to do, and it's not a great way to make friends. Um, sin hunting and other people. It's also, more importantly, not the way to gain freedom for our own souls. 
which again, we have to keep at the forefront of our mind, is the point and the hope. If we're called to expose works of darkness, then why? Well, for freedom's sake. The reason that I need to be serious-minded about where these things might be operating in my own life is, again, for freedom. And if I will keep that in mind, I promise you it is easier, I think, actually, to begin to understand why it matters that I have a right view of my own sin. Because I promise you, y'all, the things that we rationalize and justify, working it out in our own mind, very rarely leads us or compels us to do the kind of thing that we actually need to do to get free. In other words, sometimes it feels like if I want to expose an act of darkness or root out something that's not as it should be, typically in other people, that I need to like be angry about it or be loud about it or call it like it is. I rarely feel that way about my own issues, but particularly the issues in the world and writ large. I think this generation, this is particularly true. One of the, I love so much, like our, right now, generational commitment to social injustice and to righting the wrongs of the generations before us. I really appreciate that and love that so much about this generation. But for Christians, in particular, there's a call to check ourselves. Because the, the facts are, it is just so much easier, ultimately, to name things that are not as they should be out there and in everyone else than it is to do that work for ourselves and in ourselves. And so with the same kind of energy and intensity that we're going to go after everybody else, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. If it's not as it should be, it needs to be named that way. If it's injustice, call it that. Do something about it more importantly. But that starts with something that's deeply uncomfortable for me in my own life, which is examine myself and to make sure that I have done the work of saying I am sorry and admitting my wrongs. Oftentimes, one of the reasons it's so much easier to point out other people's faults is because the truth is we're all so desperate for validation. You know what I mean? We all really just want to feel like we're okay. And because we're bent and broken, sometimes we think the fastest way to feel okay in myself is to be able to point out the way you're not okay. Because then at least I'm not alone in not being what I should be. So it's like, I may drink too much, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. I may be critical, but at least I'm not a snob. And we don't make these kind of calculations consciously. It just sort of happens. And then we find ourselves, you know, caught up in it. Naming things we see in everybody else and expending a lot of energy out there and so precious little time looking in here in ways that are helpful and redemptive. Dr. King once famously said this, and you've seen it on a meme or on a sign somewhere, no doubt. It's powerful. He says this. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Darkness cannot 
cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Meaning, if you use darkness to drive out darkness, you're just making it darker. You know what I mean? If the injustice in the world causes me to be cynical and spiteful and hateful, we've just made more darkness, that's all. If my own sense of shame or other people's abuse of me, the hurt that somebody did against me, causes me to hurt myself, then we've just made it darker. That's all. If we're going to expose and drive out darkness in ourselves and in the world around us, we're going to have to use a means that is as different from our own sin as light is from darkness. I need a kind of power. I need an ability and a grace. I need something that I don't have in of myself, in and of myself, to change me or to put something good out into the world. I can't just like recycle the garbage. <laughs> That's all we're doing then is just recycling it. I need God to give me something in myself. And for you, that's a gift and a grace. That's why the Bible says that repentance is, in fact, a gift and a grace. Because the instinct to, like, actually feel the wrong in the world and in myself that would just bring me to my knees and ask, cause me to ask for help, to admit it, to name it out loud, all of that is very unnatural. It's supernatural. A gift and a grace. That's why turning the other cheek is so powerful. And I've heard many people, as of late, try to, like, do, give a workaround. Like, when Jesus called us to turn the other cheek, you know, what he actually meant was this and that. And in this day and age, the call of the Christian is, you know, we're not taking a knee. We're not turning the other cheek. We've got to gain back our ground. And we all feel forms of that. Like if I've been hurt or done sin as someone has sinned against me, the last thing that you want to do is turn your other cheek. It's just the least natural feeling in the world, in part because what they did was wrong. And it needs to be named. It needs to be made right. And I guess it's my job to make it right. Is it so? And can you is the question. Can I really? Can you really? Turning the other cheek is so powerful because it's not just merely a refusal to do violence because violence is bad. It's an admission, an acknowledgement of the fact that violence is actually the weakest form of power. Do you know what I'm saying? If retaliation, and I don't even just mean actually literally knocking people around, retaliation is the weakest form of power. Violence is the weakest form of power because all it takes to undo it is somebody with bigger muscles. If violence is how we're going to exercise force or retaliation or vengeance is how we're going to exercise force, then you're just always waiting for somebody bigger and stronger, more powerful, more vengeful to come along. And any idiot can be really strong and knock people around. You know what I'm saying? 
Any dum-dum can have really big muscles. It's not impressive. And the thing that is so incredibly powerful to me about what Dr. King did when he called people to nonviolent acts of resistance is because what he is saying is, I am going to choose to live by and embody what I know to be true. What is actually true, which is that you hitting me is an expression of weakness, not power. And if I hit you back, then that's just more weakness. And so I won't hit you back. I won't retaliate. I won't be driven to vengeance. Because it's weakness. It's darkness. It's death. And I am and we are children of light. When we do violence against each other in any kind, hitting each other or retaliating or being vengeful against one another, what we're doing actually is exchanging our glory, exchanging our power, our goodness, something that God gave to us in creation. Do you remember? The very beginning of the Bible, chaos and darkness, God comes in and says, let there be light, and then he made humans, and he gave us power, made us in his own image, so that we could use our power to do what? Flex on the rest of creation. Bring the animals into submission. And each other, the ones with the weaker muscles. No. He gave us our power to do what? What's it for? What is your glory for? Do you know? To draw out potential, flourishing in the people around you and in the world around you. God gave you glory and power to do that. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, you have in you, by virtue of who you were created to be, the power to create and cause flourishing. And Paul says in Romans, but we exchanged our glory for other forms, other kinds of power. So I have, in my own life, begun to try to think of it that way. Actually, and God help me, I'm not perfect at this, but every time I kind of like choose to refuse my instinct to call out or name or tear down it's a reclaiming of glory, of a kind of power, the actual power that I believe not only I need, but more of us need, that the world needs, a turning of the cheek. Once you were darkness, but now you are children of light. We pray the confession every single week here. And I hope that by God's grace, that's meaningful for many of you. I hope as we pray the confession that you're able to call to mind ways in which you know that you've sinned against the Lord and yourself and other people. But just on the off chance that that has not been particularly meaningful for you or as meaningful as you would like for it to be, or at least it's not all the time, the call to practice confession is a really powerful and, let's be honest, terrifying one. Because sometimes, while I can name things in the privacy of my own heart before God, the truth is, if I don't experience the kind of relief or freedom that I'm meant to, then probably what I need to do is go find another person. Because 
I don't want you to minimize how powerful it is to have another person look you in the face and say to you, I hear you, I love you, and I forgive you. To be known in it, everything that becomes visible is light. Meaning, now that thing that I was hiding or that I didn't know how to name or that I didn't feel safe enough to, I couldn't put out into the world, all that potential, all the power that it had that it turned and used against me, now that potential and that power is out. It's in the world. It is light. It can be used for good, for healing, for restoration. That is a powerful thing. So here in a moment, when we pray the confession... I don't have something new and novel to say about this. I suspect that there are some of us in this room who are not as free as we need to be with respect to particular sins in our life. And what I want for you is freedom. What the Lord wants for you and me is freedom so that we can be the people we are called to be. We can give to the world the kind of flourishing we're meant to. So we'll go through the liturgy and I implore you, call to mind that which needs to be called to mind. Invite the Spirit to examine you. Seek me and search me out, David says in the Psalms. Find the offensive thing in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's the invitation for you, is that you would invite the Holy Spirit to do that work. And if in praying and asking for forgiveness through the liturgy, it's just like, you know what you really need to do is name it to another person, then I want to encourage you to do that. Choose carefully and wisely who your person is. And if you are the person that is privileged enough to receive the confession of another saint of God, then I would encourage and implore you to say this and only this. I hear you. I love you, I forgive you. The Lord hears you, the Lord loves you, and the Lord forgives you. And then pray. That's what we do. Our everyday business of being the priesthood of all believers is to extend that kind of mercy and grace towards other people. I won't read it to you, but I came across, was reading a story for the sake of time, I won't read it, but there was a guy who was writing about how he'd been invited to submit an article to a magazine about confession, which he thought was very funny because he didn't think he was particularly good at confessing or praying. But he wrote in this letter very honestly about how his childhood trauma that he'd experienced at the hands of his parents had made it very hard for him to be hopeful and that he had been plagued his entire life by nightmares. And it didn't matter how many times he liked thought he had forgiven his parents, he just couldn't really get free. And so he wrote this article, and in this article, he writes a prayer in which he says, God, forgive them, and I guess maybe while you're at it, forgive me. And then he says, I don't know how to explain it to you, and I wouldn't dare try to sensationalize you, but the truth is my nightmares have stopped. I haven't had them, and I've had them every day of my life since I was a kid. And I am more free. 
And so I would submit to you, there's nothing sensational about it at all. If you are plagued by the trauma that you've either inflicted on yourself or others have inflicted on you, and you don't know how to forgive them, try asking for forgiveness for yourself. And see what happens. You might find that you have greater capacity once you have received forgiveness to extend it to someone else. Holy Spirit, will you help us, Lord? We're going to pray our confession together. Our prayers of the people. If you have the liturgy in front of you, I would just invite you to assume a posture of prayer that feels natural to you. Or actually, maybe one that just feels right to you, even if it feels terribly unnatural to you. You can sit or you can kneel. Clint's going to pray, and we're going to go through the liturgy, but then we're also going to just make some space to be quiet. And I would ask, I would invite you to pray prayers of personal deliverance during that time.